0: We learned from our text today that there was a compassion in Christ for children that cannot go unnoticed. Jesus did love the little children. We'll see that borne out in our text in, in Mark chapter 10 this morning. However, I'll remind you that there is a compassion that Christ has for all people in a very general way. And the only reason I'm comfortable in singing the song, Jesus Loves Me, is that little prepositional phrase in verse 4, which usually is not sung in most churches, if I love Him when I die. And really, all of the words of uh, Jesus Loves Me are conditioned on the truth that a child loves Him on the promise that He first loved us so that we would love Him in that way. So remember that as we look at our text this morning, a text that I've entitled the message Jesus and Children. Now I'm going to stop before I even read the text and I'm going to talk to the children and I'm going to ask our children to sit up and pay very close attention today, okay, This sermon, especially a part of it, is especially for you. So if I get to that point in the sermon, I guess all my children are over here, and I notice you nodding, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to wake you up. And if you have colors in your lap, guess what I'm going to ask you to do? Stop coloring. And listen very closely when we get to that point. And you adults, if you go to sleep at any point in the sermon today... She's already asked. Okay? All right. Well, let's look together in Mark chapter 10. I'll begin reading in verse 13. And they were beginning or bringing children to him. It's a key word there. Let me start over. And they were bringing, not beginning, they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Last week we looked at Jesus' words concerning the foundation of the family. Marriage between one man and one woman for life, was instituted by God in the Garden of Eden, directly from His hand. And the fall of Adam and Eve, and its consequences on the human race, as we noted last week, in no way changed or thwarted God's intent for marriage. God's purpose for the family, by His design, was that it be the foundation for society for all time. It is not by accident then that in our text this morning Jesus turns to children and their place. Not only in the family, not only in society, but particularly in relation to the kingdom of God. And for us to rightly appreciate this wonderful story of Christ's compassion for children, we must first have an understanding of how children were really viewed in Jesus' culture. They were given a very low place in Hellenistic culture, in Greek culture, during Jesus' time. The pagan mindset of that day is seen in a letter written by a husband during the time of Jesus' ministry on the earth to his expectant wife with the following instruction. Quote, if it was a male child, let it live. If it was a female child, cast it out. In other words, put it to death kill it. Roman law gave the father absolute authority over his family even concerning matters of life and death. As late as A.D. 60, a son was put to death simply because his father wanted his son to die. And this practice was vehemently attacked, of course, in the first century church And it, however it was not outlawed until A.D. 375. And then even then The law was not very effective. Perhaps the greatest biblical evidence we have of this practice of disregarding children is found in the public slaughter of babies ordered by Herod at the birth of Jesus Christ in Matthew 2. As Kent Hughes suggests, children clearly were not presumed to be blessings in the non-Christian culture of Christ's day. That was how children were looked upon. In very low regard, with no rights whatsoever in culture. Well, contrary to the cultural mindset of his day, we see in our text this morning that children were very important to Jesus. He changed the world's thinking and attitude to children. Culture's attitude towards children had apparently affected even his own disciples. Not that they would have had these children murdered, like some parents, or like King Herod or like some pagans. But the disciples show that they had maybe bought into this belief that children were really unimportant. Because of this presumed unimportance, children had no rights and were certainly not worthy to be in the presence of Jesus. The disciples perhaps also thought that these children did not have the capacity to learn and were therefore really just wasting Jesus' time coming into His presence when He was teaching. And by the way, the context here, and they were bringing, implies that it was almost as if they interrupted this time when Jesus was teaching on uh, on marriage and divorce. And so the disciples thought they're unimportant, they're unlearned, they can't learn, and therefore, in their minds, children were somehow unblessable. Now that's not a word, but you get the intent. Well, our text indicates they were bringing children to Him. And the verb is an imperfect. The idea being that they were continually or constantly bringing children to Jesus. Mark says not only did the disciples try to hinder them, but that they actually rebuked them, those that were bringing the children. And yet, they kept bringing them, and the disciples kept rebuking them, Without effect, I might add, because if the rebukes weren't, they would have kept bringing them. They kept bringing the children and rebuking those that were bringing them. And when Jesus saw this, Mark alone notes that Jesus was indignant with them. Make no mistake about it, Jesus was angry with the disciples. We don't have to candy coat it and try to get Jesus off the hook because he has this anger that would have been wrong if he did not express it. It was a righteous anger. It was something that boiled up inside him and expressed itself in this moment when the disciples were trying to hinder these people from bringing the children to him. He tells them to stop rebuking them. Permit the children, he says, to come to me. And he then reveals the purpose of his indignation. The reason of the inward boiling. The the reason of his righteous anger. The gospel was at stake. The gospel was at stake. Jesus said, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And by their rebukes, Jesus said, they were hindering the children from coming to Him. They were hindering the children from the gospel. And so what does Jesus do? Contrary to the actions of the disciples, He takes the children up in His arms and He began blessing them and laid His hands on them. With the greatest compassion, Jesus snatches them up and holds them close with sincere compassion and affection. These children were important Jesus and worthy of his blessing. Well, that is the story. That is the narrative. That's all there is concerning this text. But the question we ask this morning is what does this teach us concerning children in the gospel? Jesus reveals in this narrative that a child can freely come to Christ and a child can know Christ savingly. There are three things to consider in Jesus' actions this morning. Now, I must admit that I'm indebted to Jeff Thomas for really even more than this outline. I've never preached another man's sermon, as far as I can recall, nor am I going to do that today. But I think that Jeff Thomas has hit upon every thought that I could have had concerning this text. And what he said is so true concerning children and coming to Christ. And so the outline and a little bit more, I'm indebted to him for, and I will make comments as well. Well, the first thing that we notice in our text is how are children to come to Christ? It'll be three questions this morning. How are children to come to Christ? In verses 13 and 14, Jesus sets forth two very important truths in those verses concerning how a child can or is able to come to Christ, or two things that Should happen and must happen for a child to come to faith in Him. First, Christian parents are to bring their children to Jesus. We see that very plainly in verse 13. Jesus stated, and they were bringing children to Him so that they might touch, or so that He might touch them. And as we've noted, Mark suggests that this was a continuous action. They kept bringing. But who are they that were bringing them? Who is the they? Mark uses a masculine pronoun here indicating that it was not just mothers who brought their children to to Jesus, but fathers as well. Or maybe even older brothers. But I think the intent here is parents. Fathers and mothers. The parents, both mother and father, were bringing their children to be blessed by Jesus on this day. Now, this practice was not something new in Judaism. As a matter of fact, it stretched all the way back to the early times of the nation of Israel. In Genesis 48, verses 14 through 16, we read the story of Jacob, there called Israel, blessing Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Joseph brought his sons to his father, and in this case, the great patriarch, Jacob, to receive a blessing from him. And remember there, Jacob placed his right hand on the head of Ephraim and his left hand on the head of Manasseh. And what did he do? He blessed them both. But the text there also says in blessing them, he also blessed Joseph. Now you remember Joseph gets all kind of in an uproar because Jacob had reversed the blessing in his mind, so to speak. And Jacob, paraphrasing, says don't argue with God. This is the way it's going to be. What is done is done, and it will not be reversed. And so he blessed the children. Well, this is what, on this occasion, makes the rebuke of the disciples even more remarkable. These parents were bringing their children to Jesus as an established practice in Judaism. They may not have understood all there was to know about Jesus... But what they did know, in bringing their children to him, they were saying, you can give a blessing. You are a great teacher. You are a great rabbi. You are in the line of the patriarchs. And what did the disciples do? Rebuke them? For just a common Judaistic practice. The disciples would have known that. And so in bringing their children to Jesus these parents were confessing that Jesus did stand in some way important, that He was able to bless their children. And they were bringing their children to Jesus, who perhaps in their mind alone could bless them. And the disciples hindered them. We need to learn from the parents here, not the disciples. I want to say that again. We need to learn from the parents, not the disciples. Here we see the responsibility of every Christian parent in the context of marriage. And that is to bring their children to Christ. The father and mother are called upon in Proverbs 22.6 to train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. A parent can never escape from their responsibility in this regard. Parents will be called to give an account for their stewardship in this matter. It is not the responsibility of the church to bring your children to Christ. It is not the responsibility of your pastor to bring your children to Christ. It is not the responsibility of your grandparents or a Christian school to bring your children to Christ. It is your responsibility as a parent to bring your child to Christ. The spiritual welfare of a child is the sole responsibility of the parent. Jeff Thomas points out They, that being parents, will be asked on judgment day not if they brought up open-minded children nor if they brought or sent their children to a church but if they brought their children to the Lord Jesus. These children have been born of natural descent and also by human decision. Let's get married and have children. We thought that, didn't we? They've been born through a husband's will to know his wife but many of them have not yet been born of God because those children have not yet been united to Christ. To them, all, Jesus Christ must be brought. Now, we will look at how parents can help in bringing their children to Christ in a moment. But before I move on, I want to make sure we understand what this text does not mean or what a parent bringing their child to Christ does not mean. It does not mean that parents are to bring their children to Christ for baptism. Charles Haddon Spurgeon has a rather famous sermon on this text entitled, Bringing Your Children to Christ, Not the Font, meaning the font of baptism. Some have interpreted this passage to be evidence for the practice of infant baptism. They look at Luke's record in 1815 where he writes, and they were bringing even their babies to Him so that He would touch them. And that is a correct translation from Luke. They were bringing even their babies to be touched by Jesus. However, both Mark and Luke, along with Matthew in 19.13 are clear as to the purpose these parents were bringing their children to Jesus. It could be no clearer that it was to receive His blessing to be touched by Jesus, much like Joseph brought his children to Jacob. Many of the early Baptists point out the folly of the Pado baptist interpretation of this text, all of them living in the period of the mid-19th century. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, I've already mentioned, John Broadus in his commentary on Mark and Matthew bring out the fallacy of interpreting this in a Pado baptist view. B.H. Carroll, another of the early Southern Baptist Fathers who founded Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in his interpretation of the English Bible also brings out the fallacy that this is dealing with patal baptism. They all refute that. Now evidently that tells me that in the mid-19th century, 1840s, 1850s, 60s, and 70s, many Presbyterians used this as their proof text or one of their proof texts. Now I say all that to say this, they aren't as quick to run to that text today, and perhaps it is because our Baptist forefathers have pointed out the truth that that's not the case. But notice further, and this is coming from a, a conglomeration of Baptist forefathers, that the context simply will not allow for this to refer to infant baptism. First and foremost, according to John four two. Uh, Chapter 4, verse 2, our Lord never personally baptized anyone. You remember there, it is written that that was the duty of the disciples who were accustomed to baptizing. But isn't it interesting here that the very disciples that were accustomed to baptizing here are trying to hinder the parents from bringing their children to Christ? If infant baptism were being taught here, the disciples would not have stopped them. They would have allowed them to bring bring them to be baptized. And Spurgeon points out that if ever there were a place for Jesus to plainly teach infant baptism, it would be here in rebuking the disciples. He would have plainly stated that they should not hinder them because He had prescribed it. He had ordained it. But Jesus doesn't do that, does he? And so again, it is clear that they were bringing their children, which included but was not limited to infants, to Jesus to be touched, to be blessed while he was in their presence. And what does Jesus do? He takes them in his arms, he touches them, and he blesses them. The teaching of the text is clear. And the teaching of this text is that parents were bringing their children into the presence of Christ. That's the message for you, Christian parent. You are responsible to bring your child into the presence of Jesus Christ. But secondly, not only are children of Christian parents to bring their children to Christ, but verse 14 is plain that children are to come to Jesus themselves. You ready, children? Jesus are to come to Jesus, children are to come to Jesus themselves. Christian parents are to bring their children to Christ, but they cannot come to Christ for their children. In verse 14, Jesus said, permit or allow or stop hindering the children to come to me. King James has suffered But that's a difficult translation for us to try to to reconcile here. But it says, suffer not the little children. Don't stop them. Permit them. Allow them. Let them come. Do not hinder them. There's the positive, permit, and the negative, don't hinder. In other words, Jesus is telling the disciples, you are being a stumbling block. Just like you were when you tried to hinder that man from casting out demons. In my name. Stop hindering. Why are you going against me in this regard? Why are you acting like the Pharisees whose job it is to hinder? Stop it, he says. Permit them. Don't hinder them. Jesus says, Permit them. Let them come. Do not hinder them. Was Jesus referring to the parents here? Well, no. Because when we look at the context... Them refers to the same them of verse 13. Them who were brought to Jesus to be touched. These same children were to be permitted to come to him. The children were not to be hindered. He was not saying, do not hinder the parents. He was saying, do not hinder the children that come. That come. Now again, this refutes infant baptism. It also refutes infant salvation. Jesus took the ones that came on their own. Yes. Did their parents get them as far as they could get them? Yes. And then they came and Jesus received. Now, again, I want our children to understand this. It doesn't matter if you're 6 or 7, 10 or 12. It doesn't matter your age. You are responsible to come to Christ. The moment you understand that you are a sinner, that sin is in your heart and that Jesus Christ alone can forgive you for sins. The moment you understand that, you must come. The moment you understand that Jesus Christ died on a cross for your sin, you must come. You must believe. Your mom and dad cannot come for you. Your pastor cannot believe for you. Your Friends cannot believe for you. The child must come to Christ. The child must receive Christ's forgiveness for themselves. In other words, children, it's very simple. You must be saved. You must be born again. What did Jesus tell Nicodemus? Yes, all children are born of the flesh. Naturally, they come into this world all the same way what is of the flesh is of the flesh. And what is of the Spirit is of the Spirit. A child must come to Christ. And so I encourage you children that know you're sinners, that know Jesus died for sin, to know that forgiveness is in Christ and Christ alone. I encourage you to talk to your parents about what it is to know Christ and to come to Him. Because you must come by faith. Well, Jesus rebukes the disciples for this very reason. He looks at them and he says, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. The disciples were wrong in hindering the children because Jesus and his kingdom belong to them. Now, this does not mean that all children belong naturally to the kingdom of God. You must come. You must come to Christ. doesn't mean that All children are saved. What it does mean, as we're reminded from Scripture, is that we're all born children of wrath. We're all born under the enmity or enmity with God. We are born under His wrath. But here we might refer back to Mark chapter nine verse thirty-seven, where we've already seen that Jesus said, "Whoever receives one child like this in My name receives Me." Here Jesus says the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So God's blessings will be poured out on all who come with childlike dependence on Christ and humbly receive Him. To those children belong the kingdom of God. To those who have a Christ-like dependence on Him. To those who come to Him. Notice the text says they were coming. They were brought by parents and they came. To Christ. To those belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus says, don't hinder them. Only those who come, only those who truly repent of their sins and follow Him will occupy His kingdom, the kingdom of God. There's a second thing, a second question that we note. Not only this truth that children are to come to Christ and that Christian parents have... A tremendous responsibility in that. But the second question is, what has God given to us in order to bring children to Christ? What has God given in order that we might bring our children to Christ? We've seen that parents have that responsibility to bring their children into the presence of the Lord. But how are they to do that today? We don't have Jesus physically in our presence as they did in Mark chapter 10. Or Matthew 19, or Luke chapter 18, where the parents were bringing them to him. We've seen the pictures where he might, he might would sit them on his knee, and how he would embrace them. We don't. Jesus is not here physically. So how are we as parents to bring our children to Christ? Well, a couple of things in particular that God has given us as parents to help us in this regard. The first is prayer. The first is prayer. Again, in his sermon, Bringing Children to Christ and Not the Font, Spurgeon elaborates on this truth. He asks the question, how can we bring children to Jesus Christ to be blessed? We cannot do it in a corporeal sense, for Jesus is not here. He is risen. But we can bring our children in a true, real, and spiritual sense. We take them up in the arms of our prayer, Spurgeon preached. I hope many of us, so soon as our children saw the light, if not before, presented them to God with this anxious prayer that they might sooner die than live to disgrace their father's God. We only desired children that we might in them live over again another life of service to God. And when we looked into their young faces, we never asked wealth for them, nor fame, nor anything else, but that they might be dear unto God and that their names might be written in the Lamb's book of life. We did then bring our children to Christ as far as we could do it, by presenting them before God, by earnest prayer on their behalf. And have we ceased to bring them to Christ? Nay, he preached. Nay, I hope we seldom bow the knee without praying for our children. Now, may I, as your pastor rebuke you in the strongest language this morning if you know Christ as a parent and you don't pray for your child that God has blessed you with on this earth. Are you like the disciples? Oh, they can't understand. They're not old enough to know. Dear friend, do not be persuaded. If you do not pray for your unbelieving child if you are not concerned enough to pray that they might come to Christ, then you are not fulfilling your obligation as a parent. First and foremost, God has given us prayer and we are to pray for our children. Of course, secondly, following very closely behind, if not sometimes before, God has given the Scriptures. He's given His Word. In 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul reminded Timothy that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Notice the emphasis on childhood and on Timothy's knowing and on faith and what the Bible said about salvation. Timothy knew all of that as a young child. The word translated childhood is the same word in the Greek that we saw in Luke eighteen fifteen, Translated babies, infants. From this, we see that uh, both Paul and Luke use the term not to mean a newborn baby, not even a toddler. It refers to a child who has the ability to come, as is demonstrated in Mark 10, when they came. It, it refers to those that have the ability to come and the capacity to learn. Unlike those, the way children were looked at in Jesus' day, in Greek culture, that they were unimportant, that they weren't old enough to learn, that's not what the Bible teaches. They were able to learn. They had the capacity to learn, and in the Spirit of God, they had the ability to come as well perhaps before he was able to even read the Scriptures for himself, Timothy knew the words. He had a faithful grandmother, we read, in Second Timothy 1.5. He had a faithful mother who were faithful in teaching him the Word at a very young age. And so we learn from Paul that a child is never too young to learn Scripture. He's never too young to understand the things of God that come from His Word. They're never too young to have the Word of God instilled into their minds. Again, Jeff Thomas asks, what is the link between the Scriptures and bringing children to Jesus? It is, of course, this, that it is to the Christ of the Scriptures that we are bringing them. He is not the latest opinion of who Christ is. Opinions of Christ change like the weather But the Lord Jesus Christ of the Bible transcends all those theological and cultural fashions that wax and wane. So children are to come to the Jesus of the Scriptures, the one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and to no other Christ. From the Scriptures, we show them who the Lord is. From the Scriptures, we show them why the Lord must be known. From the Scriptures, we show them their need for Christ. Where does it all come from? God's word, the scriptures. With God's blessing and with God's blessing children they may get a knowledge of all scriptures that are necessary to salvation. Children can get it as plain, simple and meaningful an understanding of sin as their mother or their parent can. Children can get as plain, simple and meaningful an understanding of the atonement as their grandmothers can. No child can needs to become a theologian in order to see its own sinfulness and to trust the Savior and have that blessed atoning work applied to them. Well, then the question then becomes, are you as parents saturating your children in the Scriptures? At home, are you involved in family devotions? Are you catechizing your children, asking questions and answers? Guided question and answers based upon Scripture. Are you faithful in bringing your child to church so that they can hear the teaching and the preaching of the Word? Do you help them to hear the teaching and preaching of the Word by encouraging them to listen, to stay awake, to sit up, to have their minds engaged? They do it at school. They can do it here. They can learn in the same way. Further, what kind of example... Are we as adults setting for our children when they do come to church to hear the preaching and teaching of the Word? Do they see us nodding off, medication aside? Do they see us not paying attention, uninterested, almost giving the idea that we're honoring God by being here? What are they seeing us? What are they seeing you as a parent in all of these regards? This is how we can educate our children in the Scripture with the hope that they will come to the Christ of Scripture. And so the question is, are you bringing your children to Christ in that regard, prayer and in Scripture? Are you hindering them, much like the disciples did? You see, we must learn from the parents of this text, not from his disciples. Well, there's a third question that we ask What are the evidences that a child might have come to faith in Christ? This is a burning question with many parents. Probably all parents that have children that have professed faith in Christ. Particularly younger children. What are the evidences? How can a parent gain some assurance that their child has come to Christ? Well, we know that children are often difficult to read. They're difficult to understand. Why? (laughs) Because they're children. We must allow room for our children to be children. To act like children. Perhaps you're here this morning and you as a parent feel that your child is growing in their understanding of Scripture. Well, I would remind you that is good that they're growing in their understanding. But the question is, have they come to the Christ of Scripture? That is the mark that children have come to Him. They have they have begun to understand sound instruction of the Word that has been quickened by the Holy Spirit in saving faith. The Word and the Spirit always work in tandem in all those that have truly come to faith in Christ. Well, in Jeff Thomas' sermon, he concludes by using the childhood of Christ and one verse in Luke 2, verse 52, to help parents in this aspect of of encouraging them, assuring them, helping them analyze their children and appraise uh, the spiritual condition of their children. And I think it's the worth of reading his sermon. In Luke 2.52, you remember the verse, And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. Well, here we see a fourfold development that will help you in your spiritual appraisal of your child's faith. First, we note growth in wisdom. Growth in wisdom means that there is an intellectual development that is going on. The child's mind is being stretched, broadened, and deepening. They go on acquiring information, and their knowledge is constantly increasing. Today, children have access to knowledge in ways they never had before in the history of the world. Some of it's very positive and some can be very negative information. But we have this wealth of knowledge. We are the most knowledgeable culture that has ever existed in the world. A child gives evidence that they are growing when they are growing in knowledge. But notice the emphasis in Luke is not on knowledge but wisdom. There's a difference. The child's mind is being stretched. He is becoming more knowledgeable, but wisdom is knowledge rightly applied. Knowledge rightly applied. In secular terms, we often call it common sense. Right? A child learns, knows, that the flame of an oven is hot, that fire is hot at a very young age. Wisdom says... Don't touch the flame. That's a right application of the knowledge that they have. We call it common sense. In a spiritual sense, however, the child has been given evidence that they not only know Scripture, that they not only know about Scripture and about God and about Jesus, but that it is shaping and molding their thinking. Many a person, child or otherwise, has a knowledge of the Scripture, and yet they remain lost in their sin and under the wrath of God. How many of you have ever heard a person say, Well, I know the Bible, and if what the Bible says is true, then I'm going to hell? They know the scripture, they know the truth in that regard, but they don't believe it. That's wisdom, right application, godly application of knowledge. It's not knowledge alone that is important because, again, one might know the Scripture and not believe. Yes, we must continue to instruct our children in the Scriptures. We must continue to get them under the teaching and preaching of the things of God. They must have a knowledge that is founded upon Scripture. Knowledge is not enough. It is rightly applied knowledge that is the heart of wisdom. And so does the question is, does your child give evidence that he not only knows the Scripture, but that he believes it. Not that it is just authority in his life, but that it's sufficient. Does he know it and believe it as well? Does he believe what the Scriptures say, what it says about God and Christ, what it says about Him and His sin? Does your child show that he is more than just intelligent in the Scripture, but also wise? That's the first mark. The second one is growth in stature. Growth in stature. Children who have come to Christ, with emphasis on children, also continue to develop physically. This relates directly to their behavior. Now, again, one of the greatest struggles I see in parents who are genuinely concerned about their child's spiritual condition, again, is that they forget that they're children. Physically, they are children. And children are immature physically. They've not arrived. They've got some growing to do. And they, because of that, will continue to do childish things. Believe it or not. This is difficult for the Christian parent who wants to see their child develop immaturity like they are. But here we must take great care that we don't forget that children are children and that they should be expected to act like children. This does not mean that we don't point out their sin when they act like children in that way. We point it out. We call sin, sin, when it is sin. But we should also understand that just as they are growing physically in stature, immature as their bodies are, so they will continue in their sanctification if they have truly come to Christ. We must allow for that growth as well. And the key here is the word grow grow. We must examine our children in religious things, but allow room for them to grow. Is this progress, or is there progress in their growth? Now again, you would show concern if at three, four, five, whatever age your child is, if they stopped growing physically. But you would also show concern if at three, four, and five, They were six foot nine. That they were developing too quickly. You should also be questioning what's going on here. The same is true in the spiritual life, in their spiritual development. If they're not growing at all, then we have every right to ask the question, why aren't you growing? Have you truly come to Christ? But by contrast, we can't expect them to be six foot nine overnight in their spirituality. Again, Jeff Thomas remarked, a child's faith um, is no more full grown than his body. It is no more to be judged in adult terms than his physical stature. We ought not make it a criterion of whether a child has come to Christ that his faith looks like the faith of a grown-up in its grasp or in the maturity of its devotions, nor should we expect them to let go their childish things or their toys or their games. I don't think that we should ever expect those who come to Christ at a tender age to free themselves from the paraphernalia of childhood simply because they're Christians. I would be horrified if they didn't play just like any other children play. But I would also be horrified if a child who was a Christian wanted to play in the services or that he wanted to turn the worship of Almighty God into play. Keep out the clowns on their unicycles and such comedians. Sunday worship is a play-free zone. There is a time to play and a time to refrain from playing. Now just before moving on, let me remark that we can expect that when we come to church, if we've got a fire truck with bells and whistles and sirens and lights that go off when we baptize a child, we would be right to expect they're going to like that. Children like fire trucks. They like light. And by the way, that did used to go on at a large Southern Baptist church in our country. Well, of course the children want to come. Of course the children are going to give more interest when you decorate your room in Looney Tunes and Walt Disney characters. They're children. But we're not to cater to their childishness. They must be able to distinguish between what is real and what is fantasy what is truth and what is play, what is worship and of God and what is merely of the world. So we must allow them to grow in stature. Third, they're to grow in favor with man. And this relates to their social skills. Hmm. Uh Uh-oh. Some of us fail miserably at that as children. I'll just admit it. We're to grow in favor with men. Socially, we should be able to carry on Conversation, and we should be instilling that in our, in our children. But it is much more than popularity. Look at Jesus Himself. When Jesus was a child, He was spoken well of as a boy. He was highly esteemed by the people. Oh, there's little Joseph and Mary's boy. Look how courteous He is to women. Look how He helps His father, Joseph, in the wood shop as a carpenter. He had a certain grace about Him. As a boy, he continued to grow in favor with man. But there came a day, there came a day when that popularity was not enough to deliver him. They despised and rejected him. No man spoke well of him. The crowd shouted, crucify him. Not there's little Jesus, but kill him. But Jesus was not persecuted because he lacked social skills, because he lacked tactfulness because he lacked grace in the way he communicated with others. Was he firm on occasion? Yes. He just told the disciples to stop it. It's pretty straightforward. When he goes into the temple, what does he do? He throws a fit. He tosses tables up. He throws people out. That righteous anger, man, but there was a purpose. He also, he always had tact in the way that he got his point across. So growth in favor with man involves tactfulness. Jesus was not persecuted because he lacked tact or grace. He was persecuted for his belief, for his teaching. A child is never too young to learn tactfulness, the proper skills to relate to others in a gracious way. Sometimes a child will suffer persecution from others and he will only be getting what he deserves. That's a big difference between being persecuted for the cause of Christ and just getting what you deserve because they spout it off at the mouth. Well, you don't believe like I do, whatever it might be. Sometimes you're just getting what they deserve. So we have to understand that it's important to instill in our children who have truly come to Christ the way that they are to communicate with others. They must seek to grow in favor with man as long as it does not hinder their growth in God. The writer of Hebrews exhorted the believer to follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. The writer of Hebrews says that following peace is to grow in favor with men, but not at the expense of holiness. Which is the fourth thing we note, growth in favor with God. Last but certainly not least, the most important. The most important thing is that the child is growing in favor with God. Not with you as a parent. Not with me as a pastor. Not with us as a church. All of those things are important in guiding our children. But are they growing in God? Are they growing in His favor? We must allow the children who have come to Christ to grow in their appreciation of Him and His obedience to Him. When your child disobeys you as a parent, is he saying, I don't love you? No. Is he showing his ignorance? Yes. Is he showing rebellion? Yes. Is he showing his sin nature? Yes. But he's not saying, I don't love you. The same is true of spiritual children. They are going to fail. It doesn't mean they don't love their Jesus. That they've not truly come to Him. Again, sanctification will be effectual in those who are truly children that have come to Him. And so we must tell our children that if they truly come to Him, then He will keep them close to Him, and that He will change them day by day, until one day they will finally be just like Him, full of love, full of joy, and full of peace. Again, Thomas says, From the time children come to the Savior, they have to grow in favor with God, and that growth will be by inches. Won't it? (laughs) Yes. I think we often err because we expect a child's faith to be accepted from the ordinary processes of development. But everything about them is childish. My children's idea of me was a childish idea. Children's ideas of the whole world around them is childish. And their religion is the religion of a child. The concepts of a child are childish. And so are his doctrines and factual grasp and his devotional life. It may be a tremendously real and glorious faith nonetheless. If a person comes to Christ in an old age, at that time, he too is going to have what in many ways is a childish religion. And so the question we ask in examining our children in Christ is are they growing? And leave room for growth as well. Let me close with Jesus' own words from verse 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. All that has been stated in relation to a child coming to faith in Christ today holds true for all who come to faith in Him. All must come to Him by faith alone, through grace alone, according to the Scripture alone. And then they all who truly have come to Him young and old alike must give evidence of having come to faith in Christ by their growth in Him as well. But notice the warning. Notice the warning attached in verse 15 by Christ. Those who do not receive Him in this way. Those who do not receive Him as a child received Him. Those who do not come to Him as He has prescribed, humbly, depending on Christ alone for their salvation. Those who do not receive Him in this way do not have the rights and privileges of the kingdom of God. The kingdom is not theirs because they have not come. Simply put, heaven is not theirs. Hell is their home. They remain separated from God for all eternity to suffer His just wrath for their sin. They remain under the law and therefore under the penalty of the law. And Christ's work of atonement has had no effect on them. Therefore, they remain in the kingdom of darkness, living according to this present age. They are not part of the kingdom of heaven and will not experience eternal life in the age to come. And we'll look at that in a few weeks in Mark ten thirty. But make no mistake about it, in all of Scripture there are only two ages ever mentioned. This present age, which I will bear out when we preach on 1030 that began in the garden and continues unto this day and the age to come, which will begin when the Lord returns. You are either living according to this present age, in darkness, having not come to the light, as in John chapter 3, or you are living in the age to come. Your citizenship is already in heaven. The kingdom of God is yours because you have come to Him. All that Jesus speaks of here as children deserving the kingdom and the rights and privileges have come to Him. Have you come to Christ this morning? Children, 5, 6, 7 years old. Children, 43, 44, 45 years old. Have you come? Before I pray, one last comment to parents. Your parenting never ends. Your parenting never ends. We live under this foolish cultural idea. That when our child turns 18, they're adults and they're no longer children. When our children get married and come together as one with their wife and they leave and cleave their parents, that does not mean we still do not have responsibility as parents. As long as you have children living, you're responsible to mark their growth in Christ. Let's pray.